What up, Griot fam? Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast that gives you news you can trust for the culture. I'm your co-host, Shauna Pinnock, social media director here at The Griot. And I'm your co-host, Jerry Keith Gaynor, managing editor of politics and Washington correspondent at The Griot. And this week we're asking, Dear Culture, are we ready for Broadway's Black Renaissance? industries hit the hardest by the pandemic was Broadway, with hundreds of shows being canceled, thousands of artists losing work, and millions of dollars lost along the way. Now, Broadway is back and it's having a moment, a very Black moment at that. This season, every new show opening on Broadway is by a Black playwright, and you don't need to be a fan of theater to feel that impact. From hit shows like P-Valley and the She's Gotta Have It reboot to critically acclaimed films like The 40-Year-Old Version, Black playwrights are shaping the culture, whether we know it or not. Our guest today will talk with us about her experience as a writer in Broadway's Black Renaissance and All Is Glory. That's right. Originally from Dallas, Texas and currently based in Brooklyn, New York, Tyler English Beckwith is an actress, filmmaker, and playwright. Her plays include Mingus, Mayan Rivers, Bitch, and 28. She is currently a staff writer on season seven of Outlander on Stars, and her screenwriting work can be heard on the iHeartRadio scripted podcast, Daughters of DC. The adaptation she wrote of Rebecca Hall's critically acclaimed graphic novel, Wake, is set to be released on Audible soon. A member of the 2020-2021 Page 73 Writers Group Interstate 73, Tyler is the recipient of the 2020 Leah Ryan Fund for Emerging Women Writers and the recipient of the 2018 Kennedy Center Paula Vogel Play Prize. She holds an MFA in Dramatic Writing from NYU Tisch and two BAs in African and African Diaspora Studies, as well as Theater and Dance from UT Austin. Tyler hopes to create worlds in her writing where Black women live beyond the basic means of survival and have the audacity to be autonomous. And we're thrilled to have her join us on Dear Culture today. Tyler, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I will say I no longer live in Brooklyn. I live in Harlem now. Oh, well, I hate well, to... hell, she done left us. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I hate to, to say, yeah. It's all good. I, I lived in Harlem for five years and now I'm in Washington, D.C. So it's all it's all love. Okay, good. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's fine, girl. I was in the Bronx. It's all right. So, <laughs> uh, so I want us to start broad because, you know, I at least... I, I don't often get to have in-depth conversations about Broadway, <laughs> but uh, but <laughs> I corny, corny mom joke. Um, I watch a lot of TV, probably it's way too much. Uh, but part of my job is consuming media, right? I'm the social media director. I have to, I got to know what's going on. Um, but theater often gets overlooked in this now very digital age. So while there's clearly a venue difference when we think about, you know, theater, versus TV. For our listeners, Tyler, can you share with us the major distinctions between TV writers and playwrights? Um, I think the big distinction is that playwrights have complete ownership over what they write. So TV writers and screenwriters are um, almost like contract workers. Um, And then the script works more like a blueprint, specifically in film, and the director gets to make the decision on what gets filmed and what doesn't, what makes the final cut, sort of that all happens in editing. 
Um, in TV, writers have a bit more control just because it's a much faster pace. There's not a lot of time to make on the fly changes, but it's still, um, I would say, like a producer's medium. Um, but playwriting is 100% a writer's medium. What they write on the page is the only thing that gets said on stage. They have complete ownership over it. Um, writers can say how their plays are performed, where they're performed, who gets to be cast in them. Um, all of that is up to the playwright. So I think power is um, a big difference. And then also money. There's not a lot of money to be made um, as a playwright if you're not doing commercial theater. Um, and TV writers um, and, and screenwriters, although they don't have as much power, they do make a lot more money. Mm, okay, got you. Okay, so... But, you know, we've been noticing, like, there's been this kind of this this influx of a crossover between playwriters in other writers' rooms. Like, from your perspective, why are we seeing this moment of crossover and why is this so important? I think, um, strangely, that the moment of co- crossover has been happening since, like, films became talkies. Like, they always took playwrights from New York and brought them over to LA to write dialogue. I think it's just more um, highly publicized now because of the age of television that we're in. Um, because television is much more prestigious than it was all, than it has been in a long time. Um, I think more people are interested in bringing um, sort of different writers who may work in different mediums to expand what television can look like. Um, and I'm really excited about how, how TV has grown over the years. And I think playwrights can only add to that, like, beautiful new mosaic of whatever is happening <laughs> on television. You know, Tyler, it's very interesting to hear you talk about the difference, uh, the different types of writers, uh, because I think that that gets lost and that's really important. Even I work in print media, digital, I guess you could say, and even in podcasting, the the, the type of writing that you do for each medium um, is different and they all matter. And black writers in particular matter because black writers help tell black stories. And oftentimes those stories are rooted in black liberation and activism. Um, and I can imagine uh, that also spilling over in the world of theater, but there have to be enough black writers and black playwrights in theater to make that happen. Talk about uh, an article in New York Times 2021 October. Writer Michael Paulson said that Broadway's pre-pandemic theater season featured only two plays by black writers. And one of them was had been around since 1981. A previous season before that, there were only one. And before that, only zero. Uh, but fast forward to 2022, we're seeing uh, a renaissance of Black playwrights. And I, I want to, it makes me, to go back to the Black liberation um, piece of this, can you talk to us about the role that Black theater and makers have played in the Black liberation movement and how theater has made an impact in activism prior to this renaissance that we're seeing now in, in on Broadway? Sure. I think the Black arts movement has always been a key piece of all Black freedom movements. As soon as you said, like, playwrights um, as a part of Black liberation movements, I immediately think of, like, Amiri Baraka, who was working closely with activists at the time, and all of his plays were very closely connected to what was happening in the world in the 60s and the 70s. Um, James Baldwin is also a playwright. Um, I think about one of my favorite plays is The Amen Corner, um, he, that was actually one of the first Black musicals to be performed on Broadway, or when we think of Langston Hughes, also a playwright. 
Um, a lot of Zora Neale Hurston's work has been turned into plays. I think a lot of the people who we look to as um, the like bearers of our history are artists. And um, it's a lot more fun, I'd say, to look back on that history through um, music or through plays, through books, through fiction, and um, get a piece of it. So I feel like theater has always been a cornerstone. There was um, a quote that I'm going to butcher, but I remember someone saying that W.E.B. Du Bois said that theater, Black theater should be for Black people, by Black people, and near Black people. And I always think about that as um, how I want to continue to make work to make sure that it's not just like by Black people, but it's for Black people. And it's always also in a place where Black people can be in the audience. Um, and I think we're starting to see that like bigger commercial theaters are being a part of that. But I also have huge respect for um, what we call the Chitlin circuit, which is where plays like Tyler Perry plays came up um, because they got black people in the audience. And I think in commercial, in commercial theater right now, everyone's talking like, well, how do we get black people to the theater? Black people don't go to the theater. And I know that to be absolutely untrue. <laughs> We've always gone to the theater and still today we'll show up. I think it's a lot more about um, how welcoming these companies are to black folks. Oh, you're talking about the Chitlin circuit. I was like, she reminded me of <laughs> Martin episodes. You're like, mama done burnt up the chicken. Listen, I, <laughs> I'm all for that. Um, so, you know, there are, it's so, it's, it's kind of frustrating to watch from, and I and I can only imagine what it's actually like to be in the industry, but to watch, you know, there's so many black writers whose work is, their work is just not making it into Broadway. And if it is, it's like very few and far between. But what's even crazier is if let's expand that, right? So even when there are black writers or other writers of color, our our BIPOCs, as we call them, audience, if you don't know what that is, B-I-P-O-C, that's black, indigenous, and other people of color. Uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of these writers, their work is still being produced by white directors, right? So- um, let's get into some stats. We had uh, the Asian American Performers Action Commission. They put out a visibility report every year. Uh, and one of their most recent was that 93.8% of directors on Broadway were white, as were 100% of general managers. Uh, honey, like <laughs> this, there's no there's no wiggle room there. Off-Broadway, there's 78.7% of director positions are filled by white folks. And of the 34 productions in the 2018 to 2019 season, they reported at, with, you know, at least one BIPOC writer, 20, 20 were helmed by white directors. Um, so it's, wow. Again, the numbers, mind-blowing, right? So, I mean, we know that these barriers still exist, but may look a little bit differently. Um, Tyler, can you talk to us a little bit about how some of those barriers to access for Black theater makers and TV writers in general, um, kind of, how does that kind of take shape? And I'd love for you to, you know, share, how have you seen Black folks in the industry, like, work to navigate around those barriers? Or, you know, are we, is there a glass ceiling? Are people just busting through? Like, <laughs> like how, what's happening on that, on that end? Well, I think that the pandemic really enlightened for a lot of us um, just how unsustainable the Broadway um, economic model is. 
Because I don't think a lot of people understand that usually when a play is produced on Broadway, it does not make a profit. It's very rare for a play to make a profit. And when it does make a profit, it's something like Hamilton, A Lion King, where it runs for a million years and it makes everyone a million dollars. But most usually plays, if a play breaks even, that is a success. But most usually they're losing money. Um, and so what happens, because we live in a capitalistic society, people like to say that they only want to go with sure bets. So they're like, we only want to put a playwright on Broadway that we know will attract audience members. Or we have to have a star in this play because we know it will attract audience members. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, Broadway is about tourism. Um, New Yorkers do see plays, but it's mostly about the people who are coming out of town to go see them. Um, so they want to make sure... And I'm sure you guys have heard this a lot, that everyone in middle America feels comfortable to see those plays. And middle America is code for white people, right? So um, that's how you get this um, scarcity model that there, if there is a Black playwright, it has to be a white director. Um, because Broadway plays can cost millions of dollars, and we want to make sure that we're putting in, it in the hands of someone that we trust. Um, and also Broadway producers are usually just like old white men with like lots and lots and lots of money. And they're trying to figure out how to invest it or use it or whatever. Um, and they don't. They're usually in a position where if they lose a million dollars from a show, it doesn't hurt them. Um, so there's just a big fear of taking a chance on um, Black theater makers. And unfortunately, we've seen in these past few seasons where um, that fear of taking a chance doesn't seem to um, extend to white writers, uh, where we've seen like folks who are perceived to be prolific playwrights get chance after chance to come back to Broadway and work out new plays, even though all of their plays have usually a negative net profit. So um, I think at the end of the day, just like just about everything, it boils down to capitalism and folks not wanting to lose money. But what we've seen, um, I saw some stats about Thoughts of a Colored Man, which had to close early because of COVID. Um, it had the most new audience members of any other play in this past season. Like people who had never been to a play before, never been to Broadway before, were coming to see that play, which is not a musical, in the middle of a pandemic. And that is a huge, huge feat. And that's a Black playwright, Black lead producer, Black director, Black cast. I think it's important that um, we actually look at the numbers because there's, people perceive that Black plays don't make money, but when we look at the stats, they absolutely do. Wow, wow. You know, uh, I'm not surprised that there is a double standard like that uh, for black writers versus white writers. Uh, but it, when you hear that, it just really is very troubling. Um, and when you think about theater, that double standard may mean the difference between your work never may never make the stage. Um, and I think that that's really unfortunate um, when we think about that double standard, because really we're talking about uh, oftentimes when we talk about double standards, whether it's in theater or other industries, it's white mediocrity versus black excellence. And we have to be twice as good and yet still might not get that opportunity, might not get that shot. Um, and that's that's really unfortunate. Uh, but going back to uh, talking about production, we had uh, a producer on Dear Culture a few shows ago, uh, the wonderful, talented Denise Davis, who talked about her work on Insecure. And on that show, we talked about the white gaze. Um, and 
we broached on that on this topic and it, it really brought up this question of do we care about the white gaze? Should we care about white institutions uh, like the Grammys or the Oscars? And uh, playwright Lynn Nottage, uh, who is the only black woman, the only woman who has won a Pulitzer Prize twice for drama and happens to be a black woman, she said, quote, that she still grapples with why Broadway matters and why we are so deeply invested in presenting our work in these commercial realms that traditionally have rejected our stories. And in interviews, similarly, uh, film scholar A.J. Christian talked about how TV and film have turned to Black audiences out of desperation when ratings and box office numbers saw a slump. And the first thing I think of uh, is UPN and how UPN, UPN. Had all these Black shows... <laughs> <laughs> and these shows were doing extremely well. Uh, obviously, black audiences were tuned in every single night. And then when UPN had built up their audience, they scrapped all the black shows and then all the programming wa was white centered. And so my question to you, Tyler, is when we think about theater, is this renaissance that we're seeing happening? Is it uh, as we return from the pandemic? Is this a moment for a season or do you think that this is really progression for black artistry? I don't know. I feel like I could really just say a diatribe about progression in general, but I I don't think progression is linear. I think it's cyclical. And I think that a lot of what we're seeing now we've seen before. So there was a huge boom of black theater in the seventies. That's when you get like for color girls who have considered suicide in the rainbow is enough on Broadway. You get um, Melvin Van Peoples on Broadway, like all these prolific, um, very, radical black playwrights who get a chance to be on Broadway um, post um, civil rights movement, post black liberation movement. So a moment like this happening as a reaction to what's happening on the streets is not at all new um, and not at all uncharted territory. I think what worried me when I saw that all of those new black plays were being announced was that it felt almost like um, they were using black plays as guinea pigs so none of us really knew what the model was going to be in theaters post-COVID, right? Um, it was not very, it was maybe six months or so post-vaccine. New York wasn't extremely open yet. Nobody knew what the protocols would be. Um, and so the first play that opens on Broadway is Passover, which is a play by a Black playwright, um, Antoinette Nwandu. And then you get the announcements of like Thoughts of a Colored Man and... Um, all these other black play black plays that premiered this season, and I was just fearful that um, what happened would happen, where these plays are forced to close early because people are afraid to go back to the theater. You get um, the Omicron COVID wave, um, and unfortunately, they don't get the season that they deserve. Um, so while I'm excited and happy that we're back in a time again where producers are actually listening to people and um, the real people who live in this city, it's unfortunate that um, they only get the chance uh, quite literally during the plague. Hopefully, um, once Broadway is completely and um, is completely open, hopefully we'll see more and more Black playwrights get the chance to get their commercial debut. Mm. Yeah, because that, and I, I love that you brought up that point that there was a lot of, all of a sudden, here's this insurgence of, <laughs> of yeah. Black plays. And you're like, 
huh? Like, just what, what, what is this about? Um, you know, especially when you're considering things like just something, uh, just basic knowledge of being like, oh yeah, well, you know, like black audiences will probably be the more susceptible to COVID in the first place. So what, what is this about? You know? So it's, it, unfortunately you got to put your tinfoil hat on for a moment there. <laughs> uh, you know, but I, I definitely, I'm really interested in how do you feel about, and this might, this might be slightly getting off the topic, but I'm curious. Um, how do you feel about, you know, we, we've seen certain playwrights who have been able to make a huge burst in, in the industry, right? Lin-Manuel Miranda, for example. Um, and, you know, when I remember he had said in the Heights, it took him like 10, 15 years for them to even, uh, you know, say, oh, no, we're going to put it on Broadway. Oh, yeah, we're going to do a film adaptation of this this musical. And, you know, there was pretty valid criticism in terms of the heights don't look like that. I, I live in I lived in the Bronx. The heights don't <laughs> the heights don't look like that. So I, I mean, one of my questions would be, what is your advice? I guess if you can even give it, um, but to other playwrights of staying true to the work, like because I feel like there's also there's almost there's this little this little voice in the back where it's like, am I gonna have to feel the pressure? of changing my work because of the white gaze, because of what's going to be comfortable for middle America. Like how do we, what's, what's the advice for, for playwrights on, on that end? Well, I'll say like patience is key. I mean, I was blessed enough to have a play of mine, Mingus optioned um, by a commercial producer. That was, I started working on it in 2016. I got the option in 2021. So that is a five year span of time before even producers were looking at it. And from now until whenever it's produced, who knows how long that will be. But I think folks who work in theater know that patience is key because it doesn't move as fast as um, the TV and film industry does. There's a lot of time with development and rewriting which I think is something that I enjoy because I'm not like, I like to take my time with writing. I do think of it as an artistic endeavor. So I don't like to be rushed to um, to create content because I don't think of what I create as like content to be put on the internet or be put out as soon as it's done. I think of it as a true collective piece of art. Um, but I guess... I don't know. The advice would be to stay true to who you are, because at the end of the day, you're going to be the one sitting in front of that computer every day writing it. And if you don't like it, it's going to be incredibly hard to finish. Um, a friend of mine, Samaz Tusi, just had her off-Broadway debut at Atlantic with her play English. And um, she had a profile in the New York Times. And she said, writing a play is a very embarrassing thing. It's like so cringy, which it is. And she says, the only way you finish is if you really love and care what you're writing about. And it's so true. So if you are saying, well, you know, this year, they're really into this type of, you know, thing. So I'm going to write a play on this subject. Your play not might not be produced for another four years. And then you just wrote a play about frogs and nobody's talking about frogs this year. So like that never ever write for like, for what you think is producible because all I hear whenever I go on generals meet with like studios, production companies, producers is we're looking for a fresh take. We want a voice. We want to know why you're the person to tell this story and nobody else can tell it like you. 
And that's much more important than trying to um, appease whatever you think is hot in the moment. And Tyler, this is our last question for you. And we always love to have a call of action here on Dear Culture. Um, And we want to make sure that we are supporting uh, Black creators and Black shows in particular. Uh, what have what have been some of your favorite shows by Black theater makers on or off Broadway? Because we know that uh, Broadway isn't only for those who are, you know, the amazing shows are not just on Broadway. I've seen some of my favorite shows that have actually been on off Broadway. Uh, so what's out right now and what should people go out and see? Um, well, I just mentioned my fr- uh, friend Sanaz's play at the Atlantic Theater, English. I think it's open through the end of March, through the end of this month. Um, it's called English. It's about um, a group of Iranian people who are taking the TOEFL test to enter America. And it's all about loving your home language um, while also trying to figure out like what it means to be an immigrant. Um, also, it just closed, but I saw Tambo and Bones at Playwrights Horizons on Sunday by Dave Harris. Um, I loved it, um, but he has another show that's opening at Roundabout in a few months, I think, called Exception to the Rule. Beautiful, beautiful play. Wonderful Black comedic playwright. Um, what else have I seen that I... I really loved MJ the Musical, which Lynn Nottage wrote the book for. I had a really good time while I was there. You see... It was very expensive to produce, and you see all the money on stage, which I like. I like a big, flashy musical. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess I'll just say those three for now. I'm blanking. I'm sure later I'll, like, be so upset at myself for not remembering because I feel like I see two or three plays a week. But those are the ones that I really enjoyed lately. Um, And Dave Harris and Sanaz Tusi are both, like, new emerging playwrights and I think it's important to um, support the up-and-comers and 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 know what's coming because they're going to, I know, make a huge splash. Well, I'll make sure whenever I'm in New York, I will check out those shows. Thank you for those suggestions. Um, and just thank you for joining us and kicking off Women's History Month in particular. Um, this show is called Dear Culture and recognition that Black culture is the culture and it's always so inspiring to see moments like this Black Renaissance that affirm just that If you want to learn more about Tyler English Beckwith, you can visit her website at tylerenglishbeckwith.com. That's T-Y-L-E-R English, B-E-C-K-W-I-T-H dot com. And as always, for more news and commentary on the culture, visit The Griot's website at www.thegriot.com. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at DearCulturePod. We want to remind our listeners to support your local Black businesses and donate to your local organizations and religious institutions. The business that we will highlight this week is Legendary Media LLC. Legendary Media Group is a boutique multimedia studio focused on digital audio production and talent development. Founded by radio syndicated DJ, host, producer, and entrepreneur Abdul DJ Damage Caduce, Legendary Media Group supports aspiring multimedia professionals in becoming true powerhouses. How do I know? Well, I mean, <laughs> Abdul DJ Damage Caduce is definitely the DCP technical producer extraordinaire. So trust us, Legendary Media Group focuses on sharpening core media skills perfect for podcasts, radio, and television. To learn more about Legendary Media Group, visit www.legendarymediagroup.com. That's L-E-G-E-N-D-A-R-Y mediagroup.com. 
And before we close today's episode, we're popping in to let you know that DCP is heading into spring break for a few weeks. (laughs) Vacation me. (laughs) That's right. We know you'll miss us. We'll be charging and reimagining what dear culture should be. Feel free to tap into past episodes or catch up on what you may have missed. Thank you for listening to Dear Culture. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. And please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments. We love those to podcast at thegrio.com. The Dear Culture podcast is brought to you by The Grio and co-produced by Taji Sr., Sydney Henriquez-Payne, and Abdul Kadus. 